He could actually save people from death. The dark side of the Force is a pathway to many abilities some consider to be unnatural. This is for our love of a galaxy far, far away. It's a galaxy as big as our imaginations, or as close as a member of the family. This is Forever Star Wars. Hello there. During the final years of the Old Republic, the Sith had become all but forgotten, but in secrecy, the Sith passed their legacy down a line of succession that anyone could adopt from any planet or background or species. They embraced greed and power, rejecting the selfless piety of the Jedi in favor of indulgence of self. And one day, a Sith emerged who would prove to be the most cunning and dangerous one of all. He was a human who understood that the only way to defeat the Jedi was to make them betray their beliefs. By doing so, the Jedi became puppets of the dark side. Welcome to Episode 6. I'm Mark Marquis, a writer for ClashingSabers.net. This is an episode I've been looking forward to, because it explores a character that I think is the most valuable player in the prequel trilogy. This puppet master is none other than Sheev Palpatine. Senator from the planet Naboo. He first appeared in the original trilogy as the enigmatic Emperor in 1980's The Empire Strikes Back. We didn't know much about him back then, save for the fact that he was the only person in the galaxy Darth Vader answered to. But the role was eventually recast for his appearance in Return of the Jedi, a film that brought him front and center and established that Vader wasn't the true villain of the story. That honor went to the Emperor. But how did he turn Anakin Skywalker, a noble Jedi Knight, into a feared monster? What made the Emperor so powerful? How did this hunched, shriveled old man command millions of troops and inspire agents of the Empire to carry out his foul agenda? George Lucas was intrigued by these questions, so the Emperor's backstory became one of the keystones in his new trilogy. Reprising his role was character and stage actor Ian McDermott, who was cast in Return of the Jedi to replace Clive Revel, who appeared in a brief scene of The Empire Strikes Back. It was a smart move, because McDermott turned out to be one of the greatest talents to ever grace this franchise. Ian McDermott has enjoyed a long and distinguished career in theater, having earned rewards and accolades for his stage work. Not only is he a refined and brilliant actor, he's also a director of the stage and retired as the Joint Artistic Director in London's award-winning Almeida Theatre. In person, McDermott is humble, generous of spirit, soft-spoken, and, according to Lucas, one of the kindest people you could ever meet. So how did he transform himself into a character so evil? And the character was almost given to me by that face. And I spent most of my time subsequent to that walk down on the first day in this large black chair. Um, I looked at the face and the voice followed. But one day, one day Richard came up to me and he said to me, now look, 
Um, I'm going to give you a tape of Clive Revel's voice. And Clive Revel did the voice of the emperor in the previous movie. And if you can get sort of close to it, uh, George might be happy to let you keep your voice. And I had no idea that I wouldn't be using my voice. I thought, oh, I think the voice shouldn't be like that. It should be something deeper, you know, more sepulchral, uh, more horrible. Um, so I did a bit of that, and Richard said, yes, well, that's good. You've been doing that voice, I see, throughout. Um, and George actually is quite taken with it, so just go on doing it. Keep that in mind about the voice. We'll revisit that amazing voice later in this episode. Chris Neal, the dialogue coach for episode three, found that Ian didn't require much coaching. Ian has been amazing to watch. I mean, he's just, he comes from that, that English stage background where... He learns the lines, he nails it every single time. And it's interesting to watch George just sort of sit back and just go, ah, you know, it's like he knows the character, Ian knows the character, it's a no-brainer. Ian is a scenery chewer in the best possible sense. The Star Wars movies were conceived as melodramas. They were somewhat based on pulp magazine stories from the mid-20th century, which contained lurid, seedy characters. If your villain needs to play to the seats in the back, who better to bring him to life than a classically trained stage actor? Palpatine, however, presented Ian with a new challenge in the prequels. Not only did he have to imagine how to play this younger version of the Emperor, he soon learned that he was going to have to play not one, but two characters. One, of course, was the younger man who would eventually take over the galaxy. But at this point in the story, he was a pleasant enough politician, with all the polish and charisma one would expect from a man who makes his living in politics. The other character, well, he was a bit more mysterious. So I got a call, rather like the first one I had. Uh, George Lucas is in town, he'd like to see you. And I thought, well, he's just come to say hello, that's great. Um, but no, it was three more movies. And then he told me about this character called Senator Palpatine. Uh, who was clearly the young version of the emperor. And uh, he just said he's, uh, he's, a, he's a straightforward sort of guy, um, not particularly unlikable, uh, maybe a little hypocritical, just like your average politician. So, uh, and then he said, and then this other person in the background, I should tell you a little bit about that, but it doesn't really affect you directly or it won't immediately. And that was Darth Sidious, of course. And I had no idea who this person was, let alone that it would turn out to be me. Duality is a theme that pops up a lot in Star Wars. The light side and the dark sides of the Force. Queen Amidala disguising herself as one of her handmaidens. Count Dooku, who also goes by the name Darth Tyrannus. Bounty hunter Jango Fett and his clone son Boba. Obi-Wan and Ben Kenobi. You can even see duality in the Empire itself, the origins of which were a peaceful democracy until it became the very thing it was fighting. At the center of this is Palpatine, otherwise known as Darth Sidious. He's the most obvious example of duality in the franchise. In order to remain hidden as a Sith Lord, he had to create an alter ego. The Senator was a carefully constructed persona, accommodating, congenial, he wanted all eyes on Palpatine, so Sidious could carry out his evil machinations in secret. Senator Palpatine worked his way to the top as a populist authoritarian who proclaimed to be a champion of democracy, but who subverted and undermined its constitution. He was smart enough to know what to say to a public more interested in his words than his actions. 
Palpatine knew that apathy makes people complacent and suggestible to lies. But how did he do this? We have to look to Episode 1, The Phantom Menace, for the answer. The Trade Federation is working on one level of greed, you know, wanting to take over this planet, which Darth Sidious is manipulating, because in the end his agenda is completely different. He's just simply using the Trade Federation, using the Jedi, using the uh, Queen for his own purpose. Uh, he's the puppet master in all these movies. His goal in this one, the whole plot of the movie really, is for Palpatine to become Chancellor. And this whole thing is a large bunch of machinations to allow Palpatine to ascend to the highest office in the galaxy. When the opening crawl appeared for the first time in Episode 1, with words like taxation, Congress, and debate, it was off-putting. They're just getting the plot out of the way so it won't slow down the pew, pew, pew. The crawl is often singled out as one of the reasons the prequels don't live up to the originals. But as jarring as the crawl was, it challenged us to think about the politics of a galaxy far, far away. Because it was politics that gave Palpatine the platform he needed to accomplish his goals. He slithered his way up the ladder of success by manufacturing a false crisis and then capitalizing on the gridlock it created in the Senate. One of the thematic issues here is how Palpatine becomes chancellor, telling how he moved to the next level. And then when you see all of the films together, it'll all make a lot more sense. But this is kind of a, a very small thematic issue that transcends all six movies as opposed to something that's actually neatly tied up in this particular movie, although step one is that Palpatine becomes Chancellor, and you'll see in episode two that he then makes another step, and in episode three he makes another step. Distraction is a powerful tactic for Palpatine. He first had to make sure the Senate was congested with a bloat of corporate and financial special interests. Then he needed to create a conflict effective enough to demonstrate how feckless the Republic Senate had become. So he chose his home of Naboo as the staging ground for this masquerade posing as a trade war. That allowed him to garner sympathy for his people. But Naboo's queen was a more high-profile figure in the galaxy, and she was going to be the planet's spokesperson. Palpatine's alter ego, Darth Sidious, was busy instructing the actions of the Trade Federation, he saw Naboo's queen as nothing more than a pawn he could exploit. When Amidala resists the Trade Federation in their blockade of her planet, he's quick to assure the Nemoidians that she poses no threat. Queen Amidala is young and naive. You will find controlling her will not be difficult. Yes, my lord. For all his smugness, Sidious got this part wrong. Padme Amidala was no mere child, at 14, she had accomplished more than most people do in a lifetime. She devoted her young life to the service of others, and a belief in a monarchical system of democracy. The elected queen was the protectorate of her people, a title which required someone of great empathy, intelligence, and judicious temperament. Palpatine's overconfidence in his dismissal of Amidala is one of his earliest mistakes, because it was her son, Luke, who would cause all of Palpatine's best-laid plans to unravel more than 30 years later. But in the meantime, things couldn't be better for Sheev. When Amidala travels to the capital planet of Coruscant to address the Senate and implore them to take action, Palpatine is at her side, counseling her on how to approach the squabbling, ineffectual government body she's about to face. And he makes sure to suggest that the Chancellor may not prove to be of much help. 
I must be frank, Your Majesty. There is little chance the Senate will act on the invasion. Chancellor Valorum seems to think there is hope. If I may say so, Your Majesty, the Chancellor has little real power. He is mired by baseless accusations of corruption. The bureaucrats are in charge now. So when the Queen finally does see the gridlock system firsthand, and knowing her people are suffering while the Senate flounders, she makes a move that Palpatine has been grooming her for since she arrived on Coruscant. I was not elected to watch my people suffer and die while you discuss this invasion in a committee. If this body is not capable of action, I suggest new leadership is needed. I move for a vote of no confidence in Chancellor Valorum's leadership. Ah, the wheels are in motion. Senator Palpatine has been patiently building alliances within the Senate, and with his home planet of Naboo under siege, he's also gained a fair amount of sympathy. He's nominated to replace the Chancellor, and he succeeds by winning. A surprise, to be sure, but a welcome one. He's such a snake. The Trade Federation is driven from Naboo with the help of the Gungans and the Jedi Knights, and the galaxy has been primed for further unrest as more star systems seek to pull away from the Republic in coming years. Palpatine has gotten exactly what he wants. So much so that there's a wonderful clue at the end of The Phantom Menace. A parade commences in the city of Theed to celebrate the liberation, and during the festivities, a band of Gungans plays a tune that, if you listen closely, sounds very familiar. Now let's take a listen to the Emperor's theme, but I'm going to speed it up considerably. They're one and the same with a change of minor to major key. The happy ending of The Phantom Menace is an illusion. The only one who truly wins at the end of the movie is Palpatine. This is his celebration. The rest of the galaxy doesn't know it yet, but they will. Thank you, Your Excellency. And so, they've finally given you an assignment. Your patience has paid off. Your guidance more than my patience. There's an early scene in Attack of the Clones where a much older Anakin tells his master Obi-Wan that he's the only father Anakin has ever known. That's sweet and all, but not actually true. From the time he joined the Order as a young boy, Anakin's progress was studied closely by the Chancellor. And somewhere along the way, Palpatine forged a relationship with him outside of the Jedi and their strict rules of conduct. Palpatine became the outside voice of moral support. For Anakin, the Order was restrictive and punitive, but meetings with the Chancellor offered Anakin a temporary escape from that life. As Anakin gained prominence as a Jedi, so did Palpatine's recognition of him. With the Order assigning Anakin more responsibility, Palpatine was quick to feed Anakin's ego and plant the seed that he was unique among all Jedi. In time, you will learn to trust your feelings. Then you will be invincible. I have said it many times, 
You are the most gifted Jedi I have ever met. Thank you, Your Excellency. I see you becoming the greatest of all Jedi, Anakin. Even more powerful than Master Yoda. This flattery was in contrast to the arm's-length relationship Anakin had with the Jedi Order, and Palpatine knew it. Palpatine was feeding Anakin's growing sense of his own importance. Anakin was beginning to feel entitled to more, and underappreciated by his masters. This scene, as vital as it is to establishing the relationship between Anakin and Palpatine, was a relatively late addition in production, as explained by sound designer Ben Burt. From an editorial standpoint, the scene between Anakin and Palpatine came about a year or so into the editing. This was not a scene that was part of the original scenario. But as things developed with the story, it became evident that it would um, help a great deal to establish a direct connection between Palpatine and Anakin. And that there was a relationship there that uh, was private and not perhaps even known to uh, the other Jedis or anyone else. With his mentorship of Anakin secured, Palpatine had a way to get inside the internal politics of the Jedi Order, and it proved to be an advantage for his next step of escalation. The Trade Federation's blockade ten years earlier was like a pebble tossed into a pond, the effects of which rippled out into the galaxy and affected several star systems which were growing dissatisfied with the Republic's overreach. This separatist movement was militarized and posed a growing threat to the stability of the Republic. It was a threat that Sidious himself was behind, and Palpatine, the figurehead on the other side of the conflict, was just a role Sidious was playing to move the galaxy closer to war. This manufactured crisis was the very thing he needed to seek more control and to extend his reach of power beyond the confines of checks and balances. It is with great reluctance that I have agreed to this calling. I love democracy. I love the Republic. The power you give me, I will lay down when this crisis has abated. And as my first act with this new authority, I will create a grand army of the Republic to counter the increasing threats of the separatists. Lucas was demonstrating how democracies fall. They aren't conquered. They descend into authoritarianism because their citizens no longer trust the system. And so authority is handed over to a person of perceived power and strength to step up and assume control where none exists. Democracy doesn't crumble. It's chipped away one freedom at a time. The conflict escalates. The Grand Army of the Republic, made up of clones who have been engineered for compliance and combat, engages the Separatist forces in all-out war. The Jedi, in an attempt to control a war that never should have broken out in the first place, take on the roles of generals. But this choice compromises them to their core. It turns them into pawns as they drift further from the light through action and deed. Collectively, they can't see how close they are to extinction until it's too late. In the final days of the Clone War, Palpatine seeks to weaken the Jedi further by creating discord at the very heart of the Order. Palpatine appoints Anakin as his personal representative on the Council. 
Palpatine knows the Jedi well enough to use this move as a wedge to isolate Anakin from the people to whom he's the closest. Most of all, it'll place Obi-Wan in an awkward position of having to defend the Council's interests against his desire to side with his best friend. This is a time of great turmoil for Anakin. As he grows stronger and more restless with his position in the Jedi Order, his secret marriage to Padme has produced an offspring, and with it, visions of Padme dying in childbirth. Palpatine uses this opportunity to coax Anakin closer to the dark side with a hope to avert a tragic and painful future. We've come to my favorite scene in the prequel trilogy. It doesn't feature any space battles or lightsabers or force powers. There are no spaceships or alien cantinas. It's just dialogue between two people in a theater box of an opera house. It's an intimate turning point for Anakin Skywalker as he's seduced by the prospects of achieving the power he's always longed for. This suggestion comes directly from Palpatine, and it's a moment he's been planning for a very long time. Everything about the setting of this scene is meant to narrow our focus down to just two characters on screen. But notice what Lucas does with the sound mix. There's very little recognizable music. What exists is a low guttural ambience, signifying malevolent intent. The applause of the audience fades into the background. It's a subtle but eerie effect. There's symbolism in the choice to place this scene at a public event. Palpatine has devoted a lifetime to diverting attention away from his actions. In such a way, he's been able to circumvent democracy right out from under the noses of the people who should have been paying attention. So in making his move with Anakin here, in this public arena, He's showing just how comfortable he's become. He's not even trying to hide anymore. All who gain power are afraid to lose it, even the Jedi. The Jedi use their power for good. Good is a point of view, Anakin. The Sith and the Jedi are similar in almost every way, including their quest for greater power. The Sith rely on their passion for their strength. They think inwards only about themselves. And the Jedi don't. The Jedi are selfless. They only care about others. He can tell Anakin doesn't really believe his own words, so the Chancellor turns his gaze back to the ballet, pauses, then deftly launches his next salvo. Did you ever hear the tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise. The scene cuts to a wide shot behind the two men. Anakin's head tilts slightly towards Palpatine. There it is. Palpatine is like a spider, delicately weaving and constructing its web around a fly that doesn't realize what's happening. He tells Anakin of a Sith Lord who once had the power to cheat death. Such a power exists. For someone like Anakin, who sought to control fate ever since he lost his mother, this is an offer he can't refuse. Anakin's mind is slowly being poisoned with a twisted version of the truth. Palpatine isn't lying, not really. The interesting thing about Siths is they rarely lie. They present a version of the truth that circumvents right and wrong. 
but man, does Palpatine do it with such finesse, which is a credit to Ian's acting chops. And in the film, all of the films which are fast, deliberately fast, and I'm completely in favor of fast in the movies, there's suddenly this sort of little island of evil. This island of evil is perhaps the greatest single focal point of acting, screenwriting, performance, and tone in the entirety of the prequels. And Palpatine only gets better from here. Is it possible to learn this power? Not from a Jedi. The political intrigue of episodes one and two were vague and oblique, but in episode three, it all culminates. What started as boring politics has coalesced into a stealth chess match, where Palpatine is several moves ahead of the Jedi. We don't root for Palpatine, but we can't help admiring how he outmaneuvers his adversaries at every step. Having planted the thought of cheating death like a post-hypnotic suggestion in Anakin's mind, Palpatine later takes it one step further and totally outs himself as a Sith Lord. How do you know the ways of the Force? My mentor taught me everything about the Force, even the nature of the dark side. This scene in Palpatine's office is great because it subverts our expectations. Instead of turning to the dark side, right then and there, Anakin recoils. It gives the audience a chance to think Anakin might actually do the right thing. He won't, of course, because we know he has to become Darth Vader, but the scene presents him with a choice, and for a moment it appears he's making the right one. This scene is heavy with the weight of what if. By the way, have you noticed Palpatine's office? It's the color red, which is a color most associated with the Sith. There are Sith artifacts all around and even a mural on the wall depicting an ancient Sith battle. Palpatine hides his Sithiness in plain sight. But the Jedi, in their arrogance and complacency, never bothered to study the Sith in great detail. To them, the Sith died out a millennia ago, but they were wrong, very wrong. You have great wisdom, Anakin. Know the power of the dark side. Power to save Batman. When Anakin informs Mace Windu that the Chancellor is a Sith Lord, Windu gathers a team to go and take the Chancellor into custody. But he tells Anakin to remain at the temple. I must go, Master. No. If what you've told me is true, you will have gained my trust. Hmm. This is as good a time as any to point out that the Jedi Council, and specifically Mace Windu, brought a lot of this on themselves. I mean, ever since Anakin was a little kid and brought before the Council as a recruit, Mace Windu has been giving him attitude. Watch those scenes from The Phantom Menace again. These two have never gotten along. Little Anakin is totally giving Mace the stink eye in episode one, and who can blame him? He was taken from his mom, told not to look back, scolded because he missed her, and then judged not worthy by Mace Windu. And then, over the years, Anakin repeatedly risks his life for the Republic and for the Jedi Order, only to be viewed with ever-present suspicion by the very people he risked his life for, and who should know better than to fight in a war they didn't want. <sighs> okay, rant over. So yeah, Mace struts into Palpatine's office, being all like, In the name of the Galactic Senate of the Republic. He plans to put the Chancellor on trial before the Senate, and Palpatine's not having any of it. And he's all like, I am the Senate. Lightsabers are lit. 
and it turns out the Chancellor has been practicing his Sith Kung Fu in secret because he like wipes out everyone but Mace. Meanwhile, Anakin's been wrestling with his decision to rat out his friend Palpatine. And he's also thinking he needs to be there to ensure that Windu arrests him because Palpatine is still useful to Anakin even if he's in custody. But by the time he arrives, Anakin's worst fears are realized. He walks in just in time to see Sheev helpless at the tip of Windu's saber. Palpatine plays his lightning card and sends volts of electricity at Mace, which he deflects. The Force Lightning consumes Palpatine and begins to burn and mutilate his face. And in a bit of on-the-nose acting, Palpatine plays the helpless victim, pleading for his life. I can't tell if he knew Mace would be the one to arrest him, but Palpatine couldn't have asked for a better Jedi to demonstrate to Anakin that the Order was corrupt and power-hungry, because that's exactly what Mace seems capable of. And unfortunately for Mace, Anakin chooses the Chancellor and disarms Windu long enough for Palpatine to finish him off. From here, it snowballs. Anakin probably decided before this moment that he'd choose the dark side, but Windu's death seals the deal. For once, Anakin can see Palpatine for what he truly is. I believe Palpatine's ravaged face is not so much the result of force lightning damage as it is his true face. The mask was his sickly sweet smile. Now Sidious is free to be himself. Anakin bows before his new master to pledge his loyalty. Palpatine purrs with satisfaction. The Force is strong with you. A powerful Sith you will become. Ian McDermott is brilliant. The things he can do with his voice amaze me. He can turn evil on and off like a light switch. And when it's on, it doesn't sound like anybody else. Henceforth, you shall be known as Darth Vader. Can you hear that creepy breathing underneath the voice? I think that signifies that the duality, both Sidious and Palpatine, is finally becoming one. He can at last drop the pretense. Rise. With the Jedi scattered around the galaxy, overseeing the deployment of hundreds of thousands of clone troopers on a hundred worlds, they're outnumbered and vulnerable. Palpatine, having been the mastermind behind this Rube Goldberg plan of a war, initiates a hidden command in the clone's neural implants. The time has come. Execute Order 66. Yes, my lord. As clones all over the galaxy turn on their Jedi commanders and kill them one by one, Darth Vader leads a battalion of clone troopers into the Jedi Temple to wipe out every last Jedi man, woman, and yes, child. Master Skywalker, there are too many of them. What are we going to do? So that part back there where I felt bad for Anakin because of the way the Order treated him all his life? Yeah, scratch that. There's a lot of fun in watching Palpatine go full evil mode, but it comes at a price. The prequels didn't hold a lot of surprises for fans like me who grew up with the originals. We knew this was going to happen, but we just didn't know how. And seeing the rise of Vader on screen was not what I was expecting. Instead of some epic transformation, 
Anakin was lured into darkness on the promise of false hope. The birth of Vader is a tale of tragedy. Palpatine's total lack of empathy for any living thing is what defines him as a sociopath. He may be a cartoonish villain, sometimes played over the top with comic results, but the core of this villain is terrifying when you consider how much he relishes the suffering of others. The attempt on my life has left me scarred and deformed. Like the opportunist he is, Palpatine wastes no time capitalizing on his attempted arrest by the Jedi. His careful planning has led to this moment. By embroiling the Jedi in a costly and unpopular war, he made the Republic suspicious of the Order. So when he presented himself to the Senate as a victim of an attempted coup, no one questioned it. But turning the public against the Jedi was just the beginning. He had much bigger plans. The Republic will be reorganized into the first galactic empire for a safe and secure society. So this is how liberty dies. That's my favorite line of dialogue in the entire Star Wars saga. Yeah, that's right, the entire saga. Padme says it with such a visceral look of disgust. It drives the point home. Democracy isn't lost, it's given away. This idea of a democracy being given up, and in many cases being given up in a time of crisis. You see it throughout history, whether it's uh, Julius Caesar or uh, Napoleon or um, Adolf Hitler. You see these democracies under a lot of pressure, under in a crisis situation, who end up giving up a lot of the freedoms they have and a lot of the checks and balances to somebody with a strong authority to help get them through the crisis. You know, it's a not the first time a politician has created a war to try to stay in office. As Order 66 continues to lay waste to the Jedi all over the galaxy, both Obi-Wan and Yoda survive the purge and team up to try and stop the devastation that's turning the Republic inside out. The climactic confrontation at the end of Revenge of the Sith is spectacular. Lucas bounces back and forth between Mustafar and Coruscant, where Obi-Wan and Yoda confront Vader and the Emperor respectively. Unlike many of the lightsaber duels in the prequels, these two are deeply personal. The stakes have never been higher than right now. As Yoda's fight with the Emperor progresses into the Senate chamber, dramatic symbolism takes over. Animation supervisor Rob Coleman explains. Of course, one of the challenges for us on episode three was to outdo the fight that we'd done in episode two with Yoda against Count Dooku. So you always want to outdo yourself or, or one-up yourself when you've got to give it another opportunity. And to take it into this arena, to me, was just a, a stroke of brilliance. That we were taking this fight into the third dimension, as I called it. We rise up into the Senate, you know, to take it to a place where we could actually destroy the place of government the fight actually tears apart democracy. It actually rips the uh, pods out of the walls and crashes them and destroys everything that Padme and Bail Organa and the people on the side of Good have set up. 
And it isn't just the Emperor laying waste to the Senate and what it stood for. Yoda and the Jedi by proxy are also responsible. If the Jedi hadn't strayed so far from their ideals, they would have been able to foresee Palpatine's rise to power. The great imbalance of the Force is what created this rift, and it's literally tearing the Republic apart. This part of the film, like that earlier scene involving Anakin's confrontation with Palpatine, is where we feel, each time we watch the movie, that good will prevail over evil. We can almost see Yoda winning the fight. He makes a valiant attempt, but it's not enough. The Emperor has weakened the light side and become impossibly strong. The Emperor may be barely hanging on here, but just listen to him. His countless years of patience have finally paid off. Sheev is having the best day of his life. Perhaps more than Vader, Palpatine's backstory is a rich blend of traditional arch-villain mayhem, mixed with a sobering cautionary tale about the fragility of democratic ideals. But Palpatine wouldn't be the same without the understated brilliance of the actor who brought him to life. We owe so much to Ian McDermott who, in typical Ian fashion, remains humble and reflective about his contribution to the saga. Let's wrap up this episode with a few words from Ian about his character's legacy. I suppose I've been given a great opportunity with this part, these parts. Now you've created the arch-villain of all time, but I guess it's all in a day's work. <laughs> I've been waiting for this, as Palpatine has for... 20 odd years, but I can't think of anyone who's been allowed to undergo so many changes over a whole period of time, never mind over four, and now five since I'm now part of the Empire Strikes Back movies. So it's been a, it's been a, a very interesting journey and it's been very nice to wait till the end to do, I suppose, um, the most rewarding and most challenging part. So in a sense, I've had a uh, about 25 years to think about it. <laughs> so, so if I've got it wrong, you know, it's entirely my fault. That brings us to the end of Episode 6 of Forever Star Wars. Do you have burning questions about something I covered in this installment? Do you think the Emperor gets a bad rap? Or do you think I was too easy on him? You can send those questions and more to clashingsabersnetwork at gmail.com. If you haven't already, follow us on Twitter at Clashing Sabers, and you can follow yours truly at DJMRKEY, spelled D-J-M-M-A-R-Q-U-I-S. And please take a moment to go to iTunes and leave us a rating and review, which helps our episodes become easier to search for. It only takes a moment, and we'd really appreciate it. If you want to keep up with more episodes of Forever Star Wars or the other podcast shows on this network, just go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Do it! That'll keep you updated whenever new episodes like Don't Burn the Sacred Texts or Starships drop. As always, thank you for listening and supporting this podcast. I'm committed to being a positive voice in this community, so your support means a lot. The views and commentary of Forever Star Wars do not reflect those of Lucasfilm or Disney. 
All licensed sound and music are property of their respective copyright holders. Clashing Sabres and Forever Star Wars are not affiliated with Lucasfilm, Disney, or any of their subsidiaries. The commentary and production of this series is the property of Clashing Sabres and Forever Star Wars and may only be used with permission. Until next time, may the Force be with you. And always remember, Your focus determines your reality.